Protector fall Protector fall Protector fall Welcome to With Open Mouths, the podcast. I'm your host, Konita Lilla. Today we speak to Emily Changa, a curator, writer and artist, and the director and curator of Agnes Etherington Art Centre. Emily has emerged as a leading voice for experimental curatorial practice in Canada and is celebrated both nationally and internationally for her process-based participatory curatorial practice, as well as for commissioning artworks across all media. Today we take a closer look at the person responsible for the radical change underway at Agnes. We also hear about creative journeys, both personal and collective. We were shining, they wanted us in shade. They thought we would stay slaves. Hi Emily. Hi Kanita. Thank you for joining me today. Um I feel like it's this conversation has been a long time coming. I think everybody's wanted to know more about you, really, and like where you come from and where your ideas come from. Um, I think I'd like to start by asking you what led you to the visual arts. It's hmm, an interesting question. I like the word led because I think I was led. It might be through attrition, though, because my father was a drummer my grandmother a pianist, my cousin's an opera singer. So it was sort of the thing left. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I don't know. That's kind of a joke, sort of. Um, but I've always been a visual person, a visual learner. And I'm also an only child, so I drew a lot as a kid. And I kind of had a rad mom who... Um, let me be creative. I had a single mom, so it was just my mother and I. And so our house was very, a very creative space. Um, so I drew a lot on the walls. And, you know, I remember, <laughs> maybe this is like, now I'm like really diving into this question. But I remember once when I was a kid, my, I came home and I couldn't have been in school, so I came home from something else, maybe my grandparents. And my mother had painted everything in the kitchen yellow and had written, like, cupboard, fridge, floor, sink, like that kind of no-name brand mm. vibe, and sort of transformed our kitchen into an installation. And I was probably, like, three or four and that had a big impact on me. So you always, you kind of like, you think that's like the moment when you started looking at space and associating with, with like, like a visual, like a visuality. Yeah, and that the, that maybe, vi the visual or visual art isn't um, always contained within a frame. Yeah, and. I think I heard that you started with drama. Oh, yeah. Well, I was led to drama. Mm. Um, and, you know, maybe that's also because I was a dramatic child. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I ended up, in, in, interestingly, I ended up 
going to university, the first person in my family to do so. And I went, I mean, I was always a maker, um, so an artist. Uh, but I ended up going to university, and maybe this was like because I thought it should be more serious or something, um, to study art history. And in no way. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> and in a way, I think it's because I had a deep interest in English, history, philosophy, and of course, art, but as a maker. So I thought, oh, well, art history must bring all those things together. And then I quickly sort of looked around in my art history classes. I went to the University of Toronto. Um, and I was kind of like, this isn't my vibe. And these aren't my people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I gravitated more to the studio side of making. And then through the studio program, one could take this course offered by the drama department and it was in set design and I had a very interesting moment maybe like coming home to the yellow kitchen um like a very pivotal moment where I saw this course late and then called the prof um who was Astrid Jansen who is really well-known uh, set designer in Canada <laughs> which I didn't know at the time, <laughs> called her in the middle of the summer. And she's like, the class is closed, Emily. <laughs> like, you needed to apply for that class. And I was like, oh, darn. And then she said to me, but, you know, I wouldn't be a set designer now if I didn't have a prof who let me into a class because she studied philosophy and wanted to take the set design class, mm-hmm. I think, at UBC. Anyway, so she let me in the class, and I had this really profound experience of collaboration, of working um, across differences, of building something as a team together, of, of being able to understand that collaboration is about bringing together uh, individuals with different strengths and respecting their strengths and receding where you don't have a strength and letting somebody else um, take over. And I really understood that dynamic from theater, but I was never like interested in acting or anything like that. I was very much into set design and lighting design. Um, And I did a lot of, I made a lot of videos as an artist. So I often did like their AV stuff. Mm. And also geology. And geology, yes. <laughs> so I went from being a specialist in art history to ending up with um, a kind of mixed bag degree of like a minor in art history and a double major in theater and visual arts and a minor in geology. So geology crazy. is like right up there with art history yeah. for me. Crazy. It's com- completely crazy. I think I also, um, like when I was very young, I I. I took part in this um, production of Bugsy Malone in Athlone, which is like um, a place on the Cape Flats. And it was just, it was a very like tumultuous kind of time in history. Um, But my mother knew I wanted to be on the stage and she gave me the opportunity and it was really awesome. But I also got that sense from like set design, you know, that um, you can create a world and people can... Yeah, like the whole thing of like the third wall being removed mm-hmm. um, and pe- like you're actually like capturing people's attention and it's incredible. It's this amazing, amazing feeling. And I think I also 
kind of gravitated towards art history because it was like I've got to do something like serious with like a love for for art even though I wanted to like produce things and make things so yeah I think that's I love this framing of theater being world making Mm. I mean I think that's why I was attracted to it I mean it wasn't enough sort of being in a I was studying sculpture installation so I was Mm. always like spatial but this lone studio time or this sense of, I don't know, having to create the conditions for making on my own that were never satisfying. Mm -hmm. You know, I think about this world-making possibility, Mm -hmm. which is not make-believe. Yeah, no, 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 no. I mean, I think, like, I started in fine art and I needed to collaborate Mm -hmm. with somebody um, in my class um, because I was also in a sculpture program and I wanted to do installation and there was only two of us. Um, And they were like, absolutely not, because basically my installations, like one of them I did was like a giant washing line of like underwear that we kind of made ourselves, like coming out through the front steps of this very colonial like art school. And they were like, absolutely not, you know. Um, But it was at a time when we were thinking about like new possibilities, like what is the possibility of like the world, you know, um, the art world as being very, very pretentious, very Mm -hmm. white, very um, exclusive, and then suddenly having this possibility to change the way people see things. But this is interesting to think about this presence, this line of underwear, for instance, had, and mm. like how dangerous these interventions in public sphere or the spatialization of world making possibilities. I find this very attractive. Yes. As, as a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a deeply destabilizing practice, even in its um, even if it's a sculpture, you know, like it has a kind of vibrational effect on people. And um, I really like to think about this relationship of this world making spatialization, visualization, and the role that plays as an interventionist practice. Mm-hmm. But I think I think what's really important is the like all the people, like all the people that you really like you really need to be like surrounded by and supported by because it cannot be like a like individual mm-hmm. kind of effort. Who were the people like in your life growing up that informed your practice? Oh, well, I mean, I think I'll go down the family route again. My grandfather was pretty instrumental in my life. Uh, he was also, you know, I would say my grandfather was an art, a visual artist. I mean, he was in the war. He, my mother's side is British. My father's side is Guyanese. I grew up with my mother's side. Um, and I think that that was, like, influential around what constitutes a rigor and practice, that this is a practice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say it's like my mother as uh, deep influence uh, and encouragement around supporting anything I wanted to do and allowing for there to be a kind of outrageousness in that. Um, so I would say they, they were very influential individuals. Um, and, 
you know, I, I don't think I'll go down the path of all the artists who have influenced me. And I mean, I'm, I don't know, maybe it's your first question that sort of led with like what led me here that I feel um, a bit beholden to talk about origin stories. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I, you know, if I blow this out and think about where I am today, I mean, the individuals and, and people who have influenced me are all the artists I've worked with, um, situations I found myself in. I think situations can be like deeply influential um, and navigating um, difficult situations that have uh, compelled me to maybe become more radicalized in the practices that I enact today in particular inside institutions or within the infrastructures of the visual arts, less so maybe as an artist, although I don't make these sorts of distinctions actually across my practices. I think about all of the things that I do as being approached by a sensibility of an artist. So yeah, early on family situations. Um, you know, I would say growing up in a small town was deeply influential to who I've become. Paris, Ontario. I was born in Toronto, but because I had a single mom, we moved progressively to smaller towns <laughs> um, as I got where, older. Where is Paris? Paris. Yeah, it's close to... Brand it's it's uh, Six Nations of the Grand River Territories. Um, it's close to Brantford and Hamilton, southern Ontario. But it was like small town, like 2,500 people. I was like the only person of color. Um, and I think that was uh, like a pretty defining subject position to be in, um, which I think also influenced my decisions to be an artist or, or led me to being an artist. Um, and like a scrappy kind, mm -hmm. like, and a sense of like really needing to world make, yes. <laughs> let's say, to go back to that. Um, the idea of like scrappy and experimental and radical. Can you kind of talk a bit about those and how they intersect? Um, because I feel that it's about um, like a necessity for you. You know, it's it's really important. It's kind of how you frame what, how you see the world. Like, why is it that that is like the parameters of the world that you see? Well, I I have a deep deep fear of the status quo. I have a like deep. I have a um, a deep fear of uh, of redundancy. Like not necessarily of myself, but like how how things play a course and and repeat themselves and um, reestablish the status quo, which I think is also why I've curatorially often gravitated toward existing dramaturgical forms that like street processions or civic ceremonials, all the things that actually reestablish through performativities, mm. status quo sensibilities. And I'm very interested to inhabit those structures, um, recast the protagonists and deturn their ends toward other means. And I think um, that's because I, 
I'm, I'm somebody who also, and maybe it's like a generational thing, but uh, as somebody who had to like sort of grow up in an assimilationist paradigm mm -hmm. to fit in, um, which is also why I'm becoming more and more radicalized because I refuse <laughs> to accept that that is the path. Mm -hmm. But maybe it's a generational thing that I have always found myself, and this could be like a only child, single mom, only brown kid growing up in a small town thing too, um, where I have taken the path of being on the inside, the inside of institutions, like feeling the need to go to university, feel like in a way following a status quo mm. path, but not fitting into that in any way. So it's always been a, a sort of battle with those structures and systems um, that have, has made me deeply interested them in them as material, but I but not in an assimilationist way. So I think the radicality, the experimentation uh, is, is a reaction to being within the confines of systems that I myself am not the subject of. Mm. And, and I think perhaps that's why like cultural mixing and, you know, like taking forms that wouldn't especially talk to each other, mm -hmm. kind of work so well because it destabilizes that completely. You know, it says that you can actually have like rappers in a museum, you know, you need to. Absolutely. Um, what, what is it? I mean, besides the fact that you yourself like come from a cultural, culturally mixed um, like background, what is it that you find like particularly um, rich and you know uh -huh. um yeah a cultural difference i find to be a very uh, i mean it is it is i mean i gotta say i think many uh maybe not all curators are going to agree with this but i i'm going to say it anyway i think that a lot of the and, and artists i think like a lot of our practices and projects are deeply autobiographical and I think my interest in cultural mixing is comes from being mixed. And it comes from my own lived experience of negotiating multiple worlds, of, um, of understanding cultural performativity um, and code switching <laughs> in a really like fundamental way, like even with my own family paradigm. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I mean, it's not only uh, for me also a very relevant modality of the world. I mean, it's really naive not to think that we're not always already culturally mixed. Mm. Um, but I was always striving in particular in Toronto to actually bring together individuals and groups who had no perceived natural affinity and to work for many years around developing um, both methodologically, so mixing methodologies and, and cultural methodologies as a way of making contemporary art in a way that to try and open uh, contemporary art up to um, non-Western traditions, for instance, um, but also um, aesthetically, like what for me in Toronto, I was always thinking about what the future visual culture of Toronto could be. And in a way, that was still me operating within a, a very particular type of paradigm there. And I was working in the suburbs and the downtown art community kind of had its like hold, like kind of neo-conceptual legacies, very white mm. 
art world sensibilities. Meanwhile, like what was actually going on culturally in Toronto was such a so radically different from that. So I was always interested to to try to use the methodology of cultural mixing as a way to produce a new kind of aesthetic that could be in and of Toronto. Mm-hmm. So, but I think it's also about non-essentializing and and not uh, relying on a center and not trying to create systems of equivalence um, and paradigms of side-by-side equalities that didn't ever have to look back to a center or weren't departing from something. Mm. So for me, cultural mixing is also about having to to navigate dualities and and resting in, it could be multiplicities too. I mean, I'm speaking from a dual mixed positionality mm. um, and resting with the fact that um, they can all be held equally together. Mm. And I think that's, that is fundamental to how I operate in the world. Mm. Um, what is a project that is especially close to your heart? Um, because I know that many of um, your projects kind of, you know, like embody um, these ideas. God, there's so many, <laughs> honestly. Um, and I really do, you know, as somebody who also has like a tiny little family, um, I these I, I have a hard time choosing because these projects have resulted in like chosen families and people I still stay in touch with. So I have, and I'm always like, I shouldn't pick favorites, but I have, I would say um, a film called Rise with two artists of from, course from the Northeast of Rise. Brazil, Barbara Wagner and Benjamin de Berca, who I love as humans. Um, they came late, uh, like it was in 2018. Um, I'd be, I've been sort of working in this, way of working with international artists and local communities in non-parachuting way um, and uh, working in the suburbs. And it was a sort of culminating project in a sense, but it was a film and it had all the ingredients that I love. It had chaos. (laughs) Uh, It had like hundreds of collaborators, um, very, very kind, open-hearted artists, um, rappers and poets from Toronto's east and west ends and then it was shot on the subway the new subway station so it like and it it also had like this pedagogical aspect to it where it was also like learning about how to get permits in the the civic sphere um hoping that a gazillion music videos would be shot in Toronto by these poets and rappers um but also we were working with like film students from York and um, so it had the pedagogical, it had a social function, it had a civic function, it created great solidarity between Toronto's East and West Ends. So it had all the ingredients that I love in a project because it persisted. Everything in the project and the relationships between the protagonists, but also the protagonists in the city and all of these in the suburbs and these geographical locations. Uh, and the artists persisted beyond the time frame of the project itself. And I'm always interested in in what projects do. And how they continue. And how they continue. Mm-hmm. Because they only, for me, they're just 
constellations that set certain things in motion um, in a really intense way. And like mm -hmm. some of these projects take three years to make and everybody's three years older, um, but they set something in motion that can't be undone. Mm. I, I want to talk about trust and trust in projects and establishing that and how like, critical it is because it's people, it's not communities mm -hmm. first. Mm -hmm. It's always um, people. How do you maintain that? How do you maintain, how do you cultivate it? Mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you reach out and cultivate it? Like I'm, I'm just thinking of us at Agnes, mm -hmm. you know, um, what, were, what kind of lessons can we learn from like your um, previous like processes? Um, yeah, trust is big for me. Um, I like also like a little sniffer dog where I can like, <laughs> I feel things from people. And mm. so there's all, always a sense of like a deep um, desire to be in relation with people. So there is an, an, an a deep desire and, and sometimes I pursue in this way. It sounds outrageous, but like... Yeah, I'm thinking I, the graffiti artist. Yeah, I know. Like, I will persist. I show up. Mm. I continue to engage. I find every way to sort of get to know who these, who they are. Um, but the trust building for me, it does, it happens over time. And t like time and trust are like two ingredients that go hand in hand in like all of my projects um, because it takes time to build trust. And there's two things maybe that I'll use as examples, but, um, you know, one is trust building in a project sensibility or like within an institution, I suppose. And, um, you know, a sort of history of my projects has been to work with artists over long periods of time, but artists who I've worked with from elsewhere go home. I mean, they, it would be amazing if you could have a residency that lasted three years with an <laughs> artist, but no one has that kind of budget. But this was important to me because what I learned through their leaving um, was that it was me that maintained the relationship with all the collaborators and the projects. And that would mean like I went to all the poetry slams or, or the parkour meets, all the powwows, all, all of the cultural activities that everybody who was involved in those projects were working with over those three times. And my whole social life would change and my whole interest would change and my whole worlds would change. Um, and it, it implicated the institution. And this was like a paradigm shift for me. Um, where one could implicate the institution as a being, that it wasn't a nameless, faceless thing um, that was operating behind the scenes. It showed up. It, I was also a part of the institution, and, and it made the institution a collaborator in the project, and it put pressure on the institution to do so. So on the one hand, that's like maybe a way of that trust, building trust with individuals, um, and, and communities, because sometimes it is a whole community that you have to build trust with in order to even start a project. Um, how that uh, has a bearing on, on institutional practice. But, you know, with the graffiti artists here, it was very special because, um, you know, I had met Araya by accident. And this is another thing that seems to be like a through line of all my projects is accidents 
coincidences, happenstance. Mm. Um, and I had bumped into him in an alley in Toronto the night before I moved to Kingston. And wow. him and his friends, and some of, some of whom um, also participated in transformations at Agnes. Um, I didn't uh, make the connection right away. But anyway, um, <laughs> I just was chatting with them. And I don't know. A, a as riot. one does in an alley in Toronto. Exactly. <laughs> as one's leaving the city that they love. <laughs> and, um, you know, we, I said, oh, I'm moving tomorrow to Kingston. And he's like, oh, I grew up in Kingston. I'm like, oh, interesting. Um, so here's like a foreshadowing. Like, I'm always interested in, like, how did I meet this person mm. on this night in this alley? How, why did I turn that corner to meet this one person who grew up in the place that I'm going to move to? And I'm certain that I, that I need to know a lot mm. from this person. <laughs> um, this is a kind of expert in my mm. mind. Like, I'm very, I've always been interested in, and I'm going to use this word, like, in like scare quotes, but you can't see it, but like the amateur. And I don't mean that in any derogatory mm. sense, like versus the professional. Like I've always been interested in, there's always athletes, and mm. but, but, but people who do things because they're committed, because they love it, not because it's competitive or something mm. like that. And that's kind of what I mean by amateur. But anyway, um, but I mean that to I bring that up because it's around the way in which I value lived experience and everyday life as expert as experts mm. and so I'm like oh Raya's an expert Kingston <laughs> and I love that his expertise comes from the street mm. um and in fact that's his practice anyway I go for a walk I t it turns out I live not far from the so-called legal graffiti wall and I like bump into a Raya again but in Kingston and then I you know it's COVID I'm not, I can't go out. I can't meet people in Kingston. It's sort of like a very strange moment. Um, but of course, graffiti artists are outside and they're hanging out outside. So then it began like that's the first community that sort of embraced me here. Mm. And that's how I got to learn more about Kingston. Um, and then it was a trust thing because none of them <laughs> wanted to step foot on Queen's campus mm -hmm. or none of them came to Agnes. So like, what does that mean? I think they're skateboarders. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to get a skateboard <laughs> and teach myself skateboarding. Like, you know, it's also about like how you participate and show up. Mm -hmm. Um, and for me, how you prove your own vulnerability, um, and, for me, that was important in this instance because we all know that there are in, in massive unequal po power dynamics um, in institutions and especially in artists on the margins or anyone mm. actually. So how do you how do you participate at a level of vulnerability mm. first and foremost to try to eat a little bit away at mm. that unequal power dynamic? But I think it's also because you just love people. Yeah. And you love all sorts of people. And the more different sorts, the better. And yeah. it's just, you know, I think this it kind of, I don't think that you see yourself as speaking on behalf of an institution and that makes a difference. Mm. I think that is like part of like the civic role, you know, 
of what we're supposed to be doing. Um, mm. It's not, and, and that's what makes it like anti-institutional. It's not, it's not dependent on the place, but it's us. It's like us as people. Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, I think when we're talking about art institutions, at least, I mean, they are the people. Mm. <laughs> it's, yeah. I yeah. Mean, I think it's ridiculous to think otherwise. Um, but it looks like that, like from the outside, like, you know, a museum works really hard to eliminate personality. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and I think to neutralize. Yes. To kind of make it seem as if, you know, there's like a front of house and back of house mm. and the two don't uh, mix or engage with each other. Um, and that is like professionalism, you know, what? I've well, if you come to Agnes, you'll find me in the shop <laughs> yeah. or at the loading dock. <laughs> or in front with the... <laughs> or in front with reception yeah. stuff. Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I just think like methodologically, like your idea of like inreach, like encapsulates that mm. or kind of how, um, you know, it, it, it forces like an institution to like take on all these new audiences that it has to contend with if it wants to um, engage with that kind of production because it's exciting, wonderful, rich um, production. How did that, like, come to you, Hmm. like, in reach? Because it happened at a time particularly when everybody was outreaching. Yeah. Um, Well, it was related to context in uh, geography on one hand and in working in the Jane Finch community when I was at York. And outreach just was not a paradigm that I was like mm. particularly interested in. It felt um, unnecessarily top-down. I'm a bottom-up person. <laughs> um, it also, outreach felt like mega ma- masculine. Inreach felt a little like more feminist. Um, but it also was super pragmatic. Um, and like coming from both failure and necessity and that it can be as simple as uh and in reach was like sort of developing in the early 2000s for me um so this is maybe a different time but like the inability for instance um to participate in cash economies or gift economies um within a university paradigm because there's no invoices to process or no receipts to reimburse. Um, And how on earth would I ever be able to prove to this institution that this tobacco that I bought wasn't for my personal use? So there was, (laughs) you know, there was an, I was starting to understand that the whole premise of this institutional sensibility was already a relationship built on mistrust. The mistrust of me in the expenditures of the money of York University or something. Mm. But then, you know, I think um, trust is a part of inreach. Like, you you have to get off your timelines and deadlines and treadmill sensibilities if you want to operate through a paradigm of consensus. Or if you want to, like, you, like... The institution is the thing that needs to change, not the communities. And I think that's like what shifted for me in relationship to outreach versus inreach, because um, I was really looking for a kind of non-assimilationist methodology that did not 
put expectations on the individuals and communities with whom I was working in order to participate in the institution. Mm. I was like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. It's the institution that's the problem. Mm. So how does the institution bend to meet the methodological demands of also like cultural lineages that have not been the thing that the Western Museum has built its framework on? Mm. Um, and that could be like a whole methodology of Trinidadian mass and each one teach one mm. methodology. And that's like an institutional practice. Um, you know, what would it mean to bring kinder ways of working um, to, to institutional practices and, and recognize that even the protocols we hold in value, for instance, the payment of artist fees, um, aren't necessarily commensurable with particular cultural paradigms or modes of production. Mm -hmm. um, and that was very apparent in my long relationship with the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation, where the, the um, funding of a language camp was far more in keeping um, with how they operated as a nation than the payment of artist fees, which was... Um, more commodity driven mm. somehow. Mm. Um, so I think inReach is also about like really being able to negotiate your own cultural protocols as an institution, mm. even the ones that we hold up and value as uh, progressive. Yeah, but, but I think also just to recognize and realize what it is that we do hold up and that might not be serving us any longer. Exactly, exactly. And I don't know, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about this lately because in a way, InReach became, like it sort of came into the institution through these curatorial projects that were putting demands on the institution to transform. And then I was like, could InReach be a institutional practice? It, could that be the value of the institution? But the more I've, my experiences, for instance, that Agnes has, has led me to think more about what I now think, it's like, and now I'm like coining a term like in real time here, um, <laughs> but like a kind of infrastructural activism. And I use like, it would be like infra slash structural. It's another bottom up. So they like, infra being like from the bottom and like could maybe it's not just about the transformation of the art institution in particular in a university gallery setting which serves both a civic pedagogical and social role which is because we're at a university we're funded by public funds um and there's always a sociality in, involved um but maybe our role as well is to um put pressure <laughs> on policies, some of the invisible policies of HR or procurement, mm. for instance, uh, within the wider framework of the university itself. Mm. And is that a kind of role that the university gallery plays in the world building of the university as it's changing? Mm. Um, and like, I've often, I've started to ask myself, like, what is it that a university's with a uh, uh, apostrophe S gallery does. Mm. 
And what does it allow a university to do otherwise? Mm. And how can it be operating based on the very fact that we work always within a cultural framework? So social justice, economics, all of these things are always a matter of culture for us at an art gallery. Mm. And so how do we help model that? within a wider university framework that might not think of those things in terms of culture mm. and the culture they manifest yeah. through these invisible systems mm. that are the most insidious systems. Mm. I mean, procurement is what is the most exclusive, categorizing, defining, exclusionary practice one can have. Mm. Um, and so I've been thinking about like this shift for yeah. me of in reach and uh, it as an operative concept of difference. Mm -hmm. But I think I think I think that kind of feeds into your idea of architecture as a proposition. Mm. Absolutely. Um, and you know this like new project that we engaging with um, the idea that all these systems um, cannot actually, they struggle, they really, really struggle to coexist mm. with the kinds of inreach that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. How can architecture be a proposition? Yeah, I mean, I often say I don't, it can't, can no longer be a container for old systems. It needs mm. to be a proposition for new ideas. And this to me, Bear with me, kind of comes down to the difference between intervention and transformation. And while I love intervention, and we started out by talking in a way about intervention, it's such a rad strategy. And certainly as somebody trained in sculpture and installation intervention, and my own history of what the art world would call institutional critique, mine's a much softer non-critique version. But anyway, <laughs> um, you know, these interventions for me are no longer good enough mm, they, because yeah. they still go back to defining a center. Mm. So we're intervening into something. We're always on the outside. Mm. So like and an intervention to me is kind of like disruption in the sense that it's only ever a momentary shift from the status quo. And then everything is allowed to return the same. Um, and it, you can you can sort of discursively tuck it under the table, so to speak. Mm. But then I'm like, but what is what does it mean to enact radical transformation where interventions no longer necessary? Um, so these interventions we make as curators and artists within our institutions, what if the architecture has changed? And actually the intervention, if there is one, is made in the making of the architecture. What would it mean to have a community-engaged design process? What would that lead to? What things would we have to give up? And in the context of Agnes, it's like, you know, what I first started asking, what does an art center center? And now I'm like, what is it prepared to decenter? Mm. Um, and that's what's going to take mm. us somewhere. So, and you know, in our in all of our research at Agnes, we know that the spaces that contain us there and contain cultural belongings and objects and and also practices and I would argue in general beings as you know more diverse beings enter these otherwise static situations 
Um, they can't be interventions either. So this is another case where the whole thing has to change <laughs> to accommodate these practices, not the people who are entering these institutions. They don't have to assimilate either. So I'm still like on that track. But we know that these spaces are incommensurable because they center a Western paradigm. Um, so what does it mean, for instance, I mean, the Western vaults like built around a Western painting. It serves a very particular purpose. What if an architecture was built around another kind of object or being and another, another kind of practice? Um, so I'm very interested in that, in that, that relationship of architecture being a proposition that guides us towards the practices we don't yet know and guides us toward what will what can become and what what we do now to ensure a kind of future that hasn't yet happened but must mm. yeah um i i feel that like agnes and the new agnes you know is has the potential to be those things i do too um I think, yeah. Do do you want to speak about the new Agnes, Agnes reimagined? Well, I mean, what I think, I just, I'd love to just pick up on where you pointing to that. I think it has the potential, and I do. And I, I will say, like, just maybe the one thing I'll say is, I can't imagine any other circumstance where this potential can take hold. Um, and it's both Agnes-specific. I mean, it's the nature of the collections, um, which is sort of unprecedented at a university gallery. Um, it's the context in which we operate in this first capital of Upper Canada. Um, but it is, uh, it's got all the trappings of a museum, but it's a university gallery, so it's nimble enough to change. Um, but where else? Could you, where else could you think about proximity, i.e. space adjacencies vis-a-vis -vis architecture as pedagogies? Where else but a university gallery? It is, it, it is our responsibility to make this project um, enact change because it is a university gallery. This, universities are supposed to be the places where free thought reigns. Mm -hmm where we have freedom, where we experiment, where we have so-called practice-based research, why wouldn't that be part of an architectural project of a university gallery? So this is another way in which I think about not building a container, but building a proposition with architecture because we have the opportunity within the context of a university that's building a cultural center to really take experimentation pedagogy, uh, social engagement, civic action very seriously in all that we do, more so than um, even a public gallery could. Mm. And we can define um, what the new practices of museology is um, because we always already are a kind of laboratory of learning. And I hope that we never... Uh, stray away from those fundamental facts of 
our role and responsibility as a university, as a public university gallery. Mm. No, I agree. I thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. For that was me. Emily Tanga. Thank you, Emily. Thank that you. Was, it was fantastic. It was I'm great. honored to be a part of your podcast. Aww, thank you. I've been waiting a long time to be asked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Thank you for listening. This wraps up the second season of With Open Mouths. As this is our final episode, I'd like to take the opportunity to thank Emily Changa for speaking with us today and for all my incredible guests this season. Thank you for being so generous with your stories and for trusting me to join you on what was often a personal introspective journey. I'd also like to thank CFRC's station manager, Diana Jansen, for generously backing this project. A special thank you to Chancellor Maracle, who has done superb work once again, editing all the episodes. Thank you for always being there to patiently set things up for us. Your love for all things sound shines brightly. We continue to learn a lot from you. And now to our Agnes team. A heartfelt thank you to research assistant Evan Wainio Weldansky, the wizard behind the curtain, who carried the logistic weight of this project. Your gentle smile has led us to uncharted territories. Thank you to the marvelous Danuta Seahaus, Digital Development Coordinator at Agnes, for overseeing the production. But more importantly, for sharing a belief in the untapped digital potential of the museum. Thank you, Kate Yuxel, for sharing your knowledge and your creative approach to promotion. And last but not least, another big thank you to Emily Changa, Director Curator at Agnes, who this season generously added her voice to With Open Mouths. Emily's vision speaks to a reimagined museum where safe spaces can allow for all of us to open our mouths and be heard. This podcast is hosted by myself, Connie Talila, and produced by Agnes Etherington Art Centre in partnership with Queen's University's campus radio station, CFRC 101.9 FM, and generously funded by the George Taylor Richardson Fund. The music is composed by Jamil 3DN and produced by Alroy EC3 Cox III. All of the episodes of With Open Mouths are now available. And you can find them on Digital Agnes, CFRC's website, and on your favorite podcasting platform. If you like what you heard, leave us a review and subscribe now so that you don't miss a single episode. We'll see you next time. We were stolen, put on display, taught a new language, distorted our face, what a shame. We were shining, they wanted us in shade. They thought we would stay slaves. What chapter but this novel had?